The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. Hi, I'm Angela Fitzgerald, and this is Why Race Matters. According to the Madison School District, 57% of school suspensions in 2019 were given to Black students. Why is that? Large education gaps, poverty levels, and zero-tolerance policies are huge issues that affect Black education in Wisconsin. Today, we'll talk with Rudy Bankston, a survivor of the school-to-prison pipeline who shares his story of being wrongfully convicted and sentenced to life in prison at the age of 19. We'll explore intersecting themes of identity, equity, justice, trauma, and resiliency. So join me as we explore why race matters when we talk about education. Well, thank you for joining us today, Rudy. Thank you for reaching out <laughs> and inviting me. <laughs> of course. We feel like you have a lot to share on this topic. So to get us started, though, can you tell us your story and how it has landed you in the field, in the area of work that you're in? I grew up in Milwaukee, the youngest of four. Um, grew up on the north side of Milwaukee. Um, this is the 80s and 90s and attended public education. A lot of busing was happening back then. So, so that means turn, students being bused to other like yeah, schools other, outside their neighborhood? Yeah, yeah predominantly white uh, communities. Um, but the first community I grew up in was actually predominantly white when I first learned what was going on around me. Uh, my first buddy next door was a, a white kid. And at the time, we didn't know much about race or anything. We just rode uh, around on our Dukes of Hazard big wheels. <laughs> I had the Confederate flag on the back of mine. Oh, wow. And no one told me what that meant. <laughs> but so if, you're out here just representing? Man, I was, it was unaware. Fluttering. And honestly... Like, I love my big wheel, so we probably would have been beefing at that stage <laughs> if you tried to mess with my Confederate flag, but I didn't know um, what it was. But again, I didn't have any notion of race or anything back there, and we would just ride our big wheels up and down the block, and he would yell stranger every time he saw an adult, and we would paddle away and whatnot. <laughs> um, and my mother would reward us for who who got the highest grade point average, and I ended up my brother ended up beating my sister out. And I recall it was just this frustration on her face. And meanwhile, I'm this sixth grader holding a report card for the first time with a grade point average because I'm used to like ones and twos or something. Right. So I'm like, what I got? And she snatched it for me and, and I beat my brother out. So, oh, wow, so you were the highest. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking like, oh, I'm about to buy me some new shoes or something. <laughs> but um, when I when that happened with that report card, they ended up taking me out of my my class that I was in and placing me in an advanced class. And in this advanced class, I was plopped in. I was just there. Um, I think I may have I, I'm almost for certain I was one of I, I may have been the only black student in there. But and I this is sixth been, grade still. Sixth grade. And I could have been one of the only students of color, but I'm not sure. I can't recall. But I just remember being isolated in the back of the class, bored, and just waiting for the class to be over. Because whenever I went out in the hallway, my friends would be in there like, man, get out that class, man. Come back to the... <laughs> and it felt really good to be welcome. And around this time, too, too, it was an energy towards those kids down the hall. 
in the new space in the school I, I was in. And the problem was the, those kids down the hall were my friends. And I think the adults, including my teacher at the time, they they may have thought they were talking over our head when they talk about those students, but I picked up on that. Kids are way more astute yeah. than adults give them yeah. credit for. They know what's up. Absolutely. And I'm in this classroom and I'm I'm just I feel basically ignored for the most part. But when I go out in that hallway, my friends will see me. That's your community. And I'm like, yeah. So um, we we started our first um, student project, class project, Operation Get Rudy Back to the Classroom. <laughs> so um, and we should have got an A because by the end of that quarter, I was back in my classroom. It was like a hero's welcome. And the teacher from my from the advanced class they all assume I couldn't do the work, not really appreciating my need for social connection. Um, so I wasn't tripping, but by then in this school, we were those kids. I feel like that's a word for educators, right? Yeah. Who aren't necessarily picking up on all of the needs of students that they're recognizing as advanced, but who aren't performing in the ways that might be expected in the class. Mm -hmm. Like there's something to that. Yeah, and it's the missing component, like social emotional needs. I needed social connection. I needed to feel a space of belonging in that classroom. And again, I couldn't articulate it back then, but that's what I needed. And uh, the, the focus was on academics and not on that need, not on why I started coming late because I was feeling connected to my friends in the hallway um, when I was still in the advanced class. But after I got back in my initial class in the initial hall, um, the, the jig was kind of, it was kind of up. We were those kids in the school. Um, my grades went down and my mother said, oh no. So she pulled me out of the class, ended up moving us out in a, off of this street called Mill Road, down the street from a school called Daniel Webster. And by then I was getting a strong sense of race through my school experience, the energy. And I'm not indicting all educators, but it was there. It was there. And I think in a lot of ways, they didn't know, like these schools were diversifying and they they have not really, they had not really done any work around race themselves as white educators. So how do you hold this? And they're showing up with their racial baggage. Like, Which has always been the case when yeah. you think about public education. Like yeah. integration didn't require any sort of let's level set mm -hmm. and do some culture shifts. And no, that was mm -hmm. forcibly you're going to be here and the racist mindsets persisted. Yeah. And whiteness is standard. Whiteness is the norm and anything that didn't fit inside of that became the substandard. So you a part of how you show up as a racialized human being. If you're a person of color, that is being judged or denied in a lot of ways. Uh, meanwhile, I'm going to this school Webster up the street. And I think my experience at um, at Wright, at, at my old prior school, shaped kind of my attitude towards um, schools. It, it, it developed somewhat, it, it was a sensibility, but it was also a, a sensitivity towards being those kids. And it was the same thing, that it was the same issues that showed up in this new school. Meanwhile, I'm navigating this new community where, for the most part, the mothers in this community, they embraced us. But the sprinkling of, of white fathers, you can just kind of tell. And it, it included the father who of my two buddies next door because it they was a rule. They weren't feeling you all. Huh? They weren't feeling you. I don't I didn't really pay attention that much. 
So it didn't impact me, I think, like like that. But it was a rule in that, that house next door that I could not be in there. Me or my brother could not be over there when the father was home. And I never gave it much thought. So it would be times where we'll be in the um in their bedroom playing like Nintendo and the mother would have to come tell us two, three times, hey, your father's on the way home. Your friend should go back home. And she, I finally go. But one day I'm over there and um he asked me the the my little my buddy asked me like, hey, you want to see something really cool? I said, yeah. So we go in this room and this room got like guns and empty like war cannon like souvenirs from war and stuff like that and i'm looking around I'm like whose stuff is this and he looked like that's my dad's so in my head i'm like this is why we can't be here when this dude here he crazy as hell <laughs> so <laughs> so from that point on the mother never had to come get me i'd be the one to be like hey i think your pops on the way home but hit it he like no let's play this last game and i'm like man i'm out of here Cause I'm thinking dude can just blow up the neighborhood, you know? And I grew up on the 18, so I had some, I had something to feed my imagination around <laughs> that too. Um, one night I was looking out my window and how our houses are positioned. If I looked out my bedroom window, I would look in their driveway where the basketball court was in the side house. And one day I'm looking out the window and the father just popped up out of nowhere and was cussing at me and stuff like that. And Wait, he was outside of your house. Yeah, outside the window. And it wouldn't it, it's not too strange because that's where they drive through. OK, um, so it was part of their property, too. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So it was it was their drive through was right. It was set right there. So it wasn't too strange, but it was strange because I've not had an interaction with this dude. So I'm like, damn, what the hell do mad at me for? But I collapsed to the floor and my brother, boo, he on the bed, like playing a game and watching TV. I'm like, boo, crazy dude next door. So, uh, boo, boo crazy. He, he go to the window and start like, Hey, you better get away from our window. So I go in the room and tell my mother and my mother meet, um, their mother, his, the man's wife outside. And somehow he found out we had been exchanging video games. And, um, I just know it shook my mother up and I didn't know at the time that he was saying some racist stuff, but I knew it shook my mother a bit. Um, and shortly after that, I don't recall how long after that, but shortly after that, I was taking the garbage out on the way to school and somebody had written on the big garage door KKK. And I didn't really, I couldn't even appreciate what, what that meant. I couldn't appreciate what it meant, but I did. I couldn't wait to run in the house and tell my mother, cause I was one of them weird kids that would love to watch people face when they're about to discover something shocking, <laughs> So I went and told my mother she came out and she walked and saw and at, I'm like looking at her, looking at the garage. And once she saw what was on there, I saw a look on her face that like I had never witnessed on my mother's face before. And we um, we we got out of there. We got out of there. Um, we moved. No news called or anything. In retrospect, I think about that like. But no news called. And meanwhile, now I'm being bused back out to Daniel Webster. I mean, the school I was going to. So I'm still going to this school. But I'm checked out now. Um, but it's interesting when you share that story about what was on the garage door and your interactions with the dad. Because I think that does call attention to 
the more like in your face racism mm-hmm. that we act like doesn't exist here. Right, right, right. Like if we get that it's systemic, well, we're hoping to draw attention to the systemic mm-hmm. and the historical pieces of it. But there's also these like in your face moments that are not like Wisconsin's not immune to that. Mm-mm. And another conversation, like literally someone, a young lady that I talked to, she said that Wisconsin is cold Mississippi. And like, that's an example of that. Like mm-hmm. just because we're up here in the Midwest um, doesn't mean that we are immune to people having that racist mentality and mm-hmm. that coming out in different ways. Yeah, and even though this was back in the late eighties, early nineties, it's still showing up today. Like, right, it's still because you're not up today. super old. Like, I don't yeah. want your age out there, but you're yeah. not like an old yeah, yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the father could very well still be alive. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. But not only that, but the children. Right. Like I, they're taking on right, these mentalities right, of things that they're right. seeing growing up. So we're seeing the continuation mm-hmm. of these ways of thinking. Yeah. So I didn't mean to stop you. I just wanted to call No, no, no. That. Thank you. I like that engagement. I appreciate it. <laughs> For real, seriously. Um so um I'm going to the I'm going back out to this this bus back out to the school and then my mother moves back to the north side in the hood again. She like, man, the hell Because that? that felt safer. Yeah. Um and I'm going to this school, and mind you, so this happened in this neighborhood, and my mother was my is my first love. So when something impacts my mother, it it, it, it that impacts me deeply in ways I did not realize until later on. But now my relationship within this school, because I didn't have a space in this school to say, "Hey, this happened." Um, this happened and I I'm, I need to process this um, thing. And the crazy thing is she sent me to school that day. Like after seeing that, and I remember sitting in the school, but still worried about my mother. And again, no judgment on her, you know, going to school. Right. Um, but that impacted me and it, it, it deepened my curiosity around race. Um, but I was left with nowhere to really talk about it. So I was left to come up with my own conclusions and it really starts shifting how I, how, how I engage white people um, and how what I began to internalize about myself. And these are still uh, like your middle school years, middle school years. Um, so this is still sixth, seventh grade. I'm still going to Daniel Webster. Um, and there's a, a wooded area. So it's the, it, the, the, it, there, it was the school, it was a parking lot and it was like two, three blocks of wooded area where folks would go, uh, students would go hang out. We would sneak out doing lunch and just kick it a little bit. Um, some, sometimes skip, you know, sometimes just hang out after school in there. Cause it was just a place where folks went in, uh, students went and hung out. And one day, uh, there was a group of us in that, in a wooded area with a fake gun. And it was not the serious looking gun, fake guns today. It was like a real fake gun. That's kind of so an obviously fake. but an was, obviously fake gun. Yeah, it okay. was obviously fake gun. That happened one day, and ne- probably the next day, I think it was. I'm in sitting in the classroom, and a security guard come get me in the classroom, um, and pull me out and say, "Hey," started talking to me about a gun. And I don't know what the hell he's talking about because his tone was like a real gun. I'm not even drawing a connection to when we were kicking it in the woods. Mm -hmm. I'm not drawing any connection. So um, I I didn't realize what they were talking about until I got got into the principal's office and two police officers are in there. 
and they throw me in handcuffs, tell me the details. I say, listen, that's a fake gun. I I told them where it was at. It was at home. I told them where it was at. They they took me. They put me in handcuffs and took me away and locked me up in detention the detention center. They expelled me from the school. Um, wait, wait, wait. So this is over allegations around a toy gun that was yeah, in the woods near school yeah. that you were arrested and expelled. Yeah, expelled immediately. No, um, you know, and I was expelled and I was placed in an alternative. I, I spent maybe two, three days in the detention center. And it was interesting because I was probably the youngest person in the detention center at that time. So guys would ask me the old, you know, what felt like big guys would ask me like, hey, hey, what you in here for? And I would tell them I got caught with a gun. Uh, <laughs> but every adult I ran into, I'd be like, it was fake. Why well, can't go home? But it was like I was forming this like defense, like this defense mechanism. I got a gun, you know, and so it was like messed with. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a survival tactic for me from telling them that. So even when I got to the alternative school, they people would ask me, I'd be like, I caught with a gun. But it wasn't on some tough stuff. It was more so like survival stuff, right. you know. Meanwhile, I'm at this alternative school. In this alternative school, everyone is in there has had some type of uh, connection to the juvenile justice system. And this became my new peer group. In this alternative school where alternative schools in Milwaukee at that time, you had some folks who were really trying, but they were under-resourced and they were seeing some of the worst um, teachers. And I, maybe not worse, but... Teachers with the poorest records would go to the um, alternative go school. To, similar to what I've experienced in um, Madison on occasion. Uh, but it was like that that became my new peer group and it spilled over. We kicked it. We started hanging out. In the, but this became my new peer group. Meanwhile, my mother working full time. I pretty much checked out. A lot of the stuff that I was experiencing, seeing, um, I recall losing my best friend, Larry Love, in high school. And that it was, was that. nothing for you. You know, it was, that was that. And I remember not ever going back into that high school because everyone, we were pretty popular and everyone knew. And I just felt like I don't want to deal with that. You know, it was me self-protecting too. I was just carrying so much. But by the time I was 18 years old, I was arrested for first degree intentional homicide party to the crime. First degree reckless endangering the safety party to the crime. Um, this was during the OJ trial um, when I was going to trial. And I was just really understanding a lot more about race and and whatnot. But um, I had two trials. First trial ended in a mistrial. Second trial, I had an all white jury. And it was and again, this was at this was at the height of the O.J. Simpson trial and the racial divide that was being exposed, not new, but exposed right. during that time. And it was I recall when I was in the county jail, it was a it, there was one trial happened where all the white folks found said guilty. All the black folks or people of color said unguilty. So it was a hung jury. And that was in the news. So all this stuff was going on. Meanwhile, I'm on trial facing all white jury. Um. And I recall one of the jury's jurors were trying to she was trying to exclude herself from um, doing in the judge asked why. She said I was on a highway one day and I cut off the this group of black guys and I cut them off. And I think she said she gave him the finger and they caught up with her and like threw a soda out the window and it splattered off. She's like graphic and all the people on the jury in the jury pool. They're like looking all sad and like sympathizing and then she was like, and they never got caught. 
And it felt like in that moment, they looked at the energy was like, this one won't get away, though. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm there paranoid. I'm like, man, <laughs> this is it, you know. So um, meanwhile, I get found uh, guilty. And I always say I'm not innocent in terms of like I fell off into the streets. You're talking about the 90s in Milwaukee, like, you know what I mean? But I I was not guilty of this particular um, uh, case. Um, but yet I was found guilty and at, I was arrested at 18, spent a year in the county jail fighting the case. And by uh, 19, I was on my way to spend the rest of my life basically in prison. So while, while I was in prison, though, I started really looking at like my life, like what the hell? How the hell did I end up in prison <laughs> with a life sentence at 19 years old? I started out angry frustrated, confused. Um, and then I started reading. My mother went to a black bookstore in Milwaukee. It was called Culture Connection, and she sent me some books. And one of the first books I got was by Naim Akbar, and it was a book about human transformation, um, about how she, he was doing it. He did an analogy in a book how you start off as a caterpillar and then you become a butterfly. So that growth stage and what that's about. But he did it through pretty much an Afrocentric lens. Um, and I just started reading, doing a lot of reading. And a lot of the reading was convicting. Like it, it gave me a lot of, it convicted me a lot because it, those words on the page were like mirrors being held up. Because at the time, by the time I got to prison, I was in a severe identity crisis. Like I had pretty much in, and accepted and internalized and began to live out the stereotypes that I heard about what a black male is. Through that reading, I started to really discover how resilient and beautiful and how much genius um, black people hold. And, and growing up in education, I always got the slave story. Right. But even with that slave story, I got this as victims. But I started reading new interpretations where it was the interpretation like slavery was one thing, but before the po uh, the transatlantic slave trade, there were universities in Africa and there are structures in Africa that align to outer space that uh, folks are still trying to figure out how that that how those things were set up before space travel. And like knowledge became like it, it became like innate, like this is a part of who we are. You know what I mean? And this is stuff I never learned. And again, even when we got to slavery, the story was different. Like how much genius and resilience it took to survive. Mm -hmm. in the, even in some instances, thrive when the world was set up to crush you and make you feel less than. I learned about why we went from Africans to Negroes. And when you rob people of their names, then you can define who they are. And so it was just so much stuff that I was learning during that time. And I began to really realize, truly realize that, that, that our ignorance is weaponized against us. And Frederick Douglass' story changed my life because awesome. like that just changed my life. It's two scenes in particular. One scene was him scheming to educate himself, scheming his slave master's um, son to teach him how to ring, scheming, like how much risk was, was it was for black people to learn how to read. And back then, if you got caught with a book reading it, you, you might as well had a pistol today. But it was also a scene in Frederick Douglass's book when um, he was older now and 
his master's wife was teaching him how to read. And the master found out and became irate. And Frederick Douglass recalls in his autobiography how the master said, you don't teach a slave how to read or write. Because if you teach a slave how to read or write, you will not be able to hold them as a slave. You, It would be impossible to. And that really clicked because it really helped us understand why we were denied that education back then. Because through education, it helps you to 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 have this intimate relationship with your humanity. And when you know you're a human, you're not going to accept slavery or oppression. And it's similar to today. When we know what we're truly worth, we're not going to accept. So it's going to be some stuff that's happening downtown with some new artwork on and less glass in the wind. You know what I mean? Because you know what you're worth and you don't deserve to be disrespected. So just that education piece became critical, but not a white-centered education. I was going to yeah. say, because when people hear the word education, yeah. a certain idea comes to mind. The assumption mm -hmm. is like, oh, well, we have education. Mm -hmm. But as you've already pointed out, like what type of education, what mm -hmm. sort of messaging is that education communicating to black students? And if it's reinforcing this negative narrative, then how is that going to make that student feel empowered in mm -hmm. your classroom? Right? So like a stereotype threat is a thing. It's an absolute <laughs> thing, mm -hmm. right? How is that causing me to view myself in a way that is empowering, that I can then perform well? Mm -hmm. Or is it feeding these like defeatist victim mentalities to me so it's, I don't even think that I can. And I'm so hard trying to disprove this idea that I can't, that I'm underperforming, right? So like, yeah, overhauling education and just it's confronting critical. how we go about it. Like, absolutely. Like, who is it serving? Mm -hmm. And if it's not equally serving everyone, then what needs to change? Mm -hmm. And not getting so caught up in, in test scores and stuff like that. If they're not, what are you testing on according to whose standards? And is this young person leaving education as an, a young adult a critical thinker? Or um, was this young person treated like an empty vessel where you just poured information into Um so this was my process. One of the only jobs I would take in prison was that of a tutor. Um, and I basically I became I learned how to teach during those during this time, because part of my job was to convince men who were doing life, double life, triple life, 60 years, 70 years, 30 years, that education was still important. I'm not coming with, bro, education is the future. They look at me like, what future? Man? Right, you I know? have no future. So it was just a different approach. And it just started off and this happened organically where I would just listen. And hear these stories. And a lot of these stories remain inside me and I carry them in the work that I do. But I would hear these stories and I would certain times I would go in my cell and write my mother these long letters of apology just by hearing their stories and their struggles. And what has been in these would be some of the most intelligent, talented, like like the prison system is a cemetery of, of some of the best talent in the world just sitting there. And a lot of these men would rediscover um, writing and, and music and philosophy and just deep, deep stuff. And it just sitting. So that impacted me because that became my thing. Like, and I, prison does it to you too. I became convinced by the time I was a tutor that my job was to revolutionize the mind of every brother who came in the joint. Like we was going to revolutionize. We we're going to get back in the community. We was going to start the revolution. That was like, you know, <laughs> that was the goal. You know freedom dreaming. There you go. <laughs> With a little delusion. <laughs> 
Um, it wasn't delusional. It's somewhat, right yeah, now. no doubt. I, I was right. I was reading the Panthers at a period, and yeah, so it was real. Uh, I have a more balanced view, even though I love the Panthers. They have a lot to teach us. I was gonna say, I feel like they are yeah. putting a lane that does not reflect the totality of what they it, do. It totally, it, it totally does. And they, that's they brought breakfast programs, right? And there breakfast was programs, no free food program yeah. in communities. And not them. only that, but the key part of the breakfast program, you got educated. So you didn't just come in and get free food. You got educated then about your rights. You got educated on on many levels, on many levels. And that's I think that's why they became a target because of that, you know. Um, but just learning about that and, and really connecting with these brothers and reckon it, it, during that period it really taught me the importance of relationship uh, when when in education and a lot of times our common ground was hip-hop music i grew up on tupac and they start showing up saying boosie is better than tupac and i'll be like what well who would you know then i called my daughter and she's like yeah boosie is i'll be like what so that would begin the conversation, but the beautiful thing about the history of the story of Tupac was, and is is his history, and he is rich. He has the Black Panther. His mother was a Panther. Asada was connected. Asada Shakur, she was connected. So I was able. This this was the beginning. And next thing you know, I'm sliding them articles, and they're thinking it's about hip hop. And and next thing you know, it's books that the, you know. And it got to the point where the older brother, the young dudes gravitated towards me in prison. So I feel like you're dropping these nuggets that yeah. I want to just make sure we're capturing yeah, here. Yeah, 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 Like literally the, you felt, you figured out the hook, mm -hmm. right, to providing education or a source of education to this right. group of people rather than just saying, here, read this. Right, and right. then I'm going to like villainize mm -hmm. you for not doing it. Like, okay, let me figure out what you're interested in and then tie that to your interest. I feel like that's one of those key nuggets around education, which I know we're going to circle back to in a little yeah. bit. But I just wanted to yeah, amplify music that as was well. It because a like, lot of them brothers didn't have anything but a pen in prison. So many of them wrote music. And they would always bring it to me. They would bring it, bro, like, could you look at this big bro? Yeah. And I would give them that critical feedback. But I used it to teach them grammar. I sell the <laughs> dictionary of the source on them. Like, man, words are your weapons. The more words you got, how you think Tupac was so cold? So I would have, you know what I mean? And um, but it was like this genuine wanting to see them go home and, and just rock the world with whatever their gifts. They wrote books and all any number of things. Um, but I also became a target in prison because it was I ended up moving to a dorm. And at first, when they moved me to this dorm, it's like 200 or I don't know how many. But I'm like, I don't want to be around all these, you know. But then I saw potential like, oh, I'm going to start some groups. So me and some brothers, we started groups and. Man, one day they came and rounded me up, took all my books, my paperwork, and sent me to the hole. Wow, and that's solitary confinement? Solitary confinement. They took put me in the hole because they would say it's something else. It was because at noon, after lunch, we over in the corner, we have a dictionary on the table. We have a thesaurus on the table. We're reading books like Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the United States. And we're this, you know what I mean? And they like, what the hell is going on over there? It's still like, it's plantational because it was like, they getting educated over there. And no, I went to the whole, I still got the ticket where, or the conduct report where they're literally saying he got caught with this Black Panther book. And these were books they let in. And it's just bizarre. Like if you read this, it'll seem like some Jagger Hoover 
counterintelligence programs. Like, and I'm reading this, but you know, I got a beautiful sister. I had a beautiful sister, still do. Um, she, 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 she got them people on the phone, you know. But it, and I got, and they, they reduced my time in a hole. But it was many men getting targeted for for filing lawsuits and things like that that didn't have that outside support. You know what I mean? And this is what drives men crazy, where you're literally fighting for your humanity, fighting for your freedom, fighting for things, and you're being punished for it. And you, when you get stuck in a cell and just feeling that, because there were times my mind popped and said, you know what I mean? So I, they started scrutinizing me for everything I got in, reading material. Not contra well contraband was certain reading material. I was gonna say in your yeah. sense, it's, it was it's, it's, it's what crazy. Reading. It's bizarre. And again, I still have the conduct report because I saved this because people would not believe what goes on inside those prisons. And you gotta realize many of those prisons are in white rural areas, and this is the first time many of these uh the white folks interface with with with, with like people the correctional of color. officers yeah and, and like that. they are they hold a lot of what they heard through the media and things like that so and in many ways even though the the, the label criminal is on these men and and women in, in prison in many ways they are the most vulnerable because they're isolated and they're stigmatized right. and any throughout history when you think about throughout history when you think about um, black people, when you think about the Jewish Holocaust, those in power had to demonize the folks first to convince the rest of the um, country, community or whatever, that they deserve being treated less than human. And it's similar today with whether you're talking about um, quote unquote immigrants or um, having that stigma of criminalization on you. Um, so it lives on. Um, so anyway, that was my like, that's what I did in a joint around 2004. I ended up um, getting sent to the hole. We were on a basketball court and it got it got rough. Um, and I was sent to the hole. And I was sent to the hole and sentenced to 360 days in segregation. And I'm like, man, get my books and read material. And it's hell. Like segregation, the future will judge us harshly on segregation units because there are dehumanization tanks, there are torture, torture chambers. But I'm like... I didn't watch much TV and things like that. So I had kind of built my stamina around reading and writing. You know what I mean? And it was still hell. Don't get me wrong. Segregation units are hell. And that was just playing to this chipping away. And I recall one day I was on my bed and in my head, I got up and went and spit in the toilet. But I spit right on my bed. But in my head, I was at the toilet and I spit. And I'm like, damn, what the hell? So it was that type of environment. But also in this environment, it was the beginning of my physical freedom. Because I met an educator in his environment named um, Pat Anderson. P Pat Anderson was a, a teacher. In the, and I would watch her out the door. Like when she would deliver books, she would come down with her little book cart. And Pat Anderson, at the time, she was probably 60, 65-year-old white woman. But she refused not to see our humanity. So it would be brothers who would, she would come to, she would push her little cart to the door and say, you want a book? And this, so she would just get cussed out. But she would understand what those conditions was doing. So she would look this man in the face who just cussed out like, yes, but do you want a book? 
She wasn't taking any and personally. And not budge, not shaking, not, I don't wow. know if she was just at that age, like, whatever, yeah, I ain't scared of you, <laughs> do it. Yeah. But she didn't care, like, wow. but she had a heart that, like, in those conditions, and I'm watching her, I never communicated with her, but then someone from another unit who knew I had already um, written a book said, bro, you got to get in this writing class. So in, in Bossville, was a, you leveled up out of there. And I ended up leveling up to green. And this is like on my second year in Bosqueville now. And that's just, I guess, you're like performance, for lack of a better term? Um, or? You do these programs, you, like you do the programs. And anyway, now I'm able to attend class, but I attend class, her writing class, I wrote her and she accepted. And I attend classes with handcuffs. We we all did in handcuffs. So we all sitting in there and here's this, <laughs> uh, this, 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 older white woman just holding court getting in our face like she she what she was saying was y'all are human beings you know and even if you don't think you're a human being you ain't gonna fool me so she just engaged us like that so I got in her class with an alternative motive I had written my first book and I and my again prison does it to the mind I was like all I gotta do is get this book in her hand and she's going to read it and say, oh, my so God. Inspired. And then she's going to get it out there and people going to show up with free Rudy signs and they're going to have to let like prison does it to the mind, especially Supermax prison in Boscobel, Wisconsin. Um, so anyway, I, we just built a genuine um, friendship as much as we can have one in those conditions. And it was at one point she just looked at me and said, you do not belong in prison. And this is the first time anyone had said that to you. Those words. And this had been 10 years as of this yeah, point. This is, wow. this is, no, now it's 2006. So, so it's 11 years. years now. 11 years. 11 years. And she said that to me with such sincerity. Um, and she, but she didn't, Pat, like you had to learn in her class because a lot of folks didn't realize, like you had, she, I thought I was a writer. I came in there arrogant. I started getting all that rip ink splattered on my papers it humbled the hell out of me like oh my god and it'll be it became a competition i'm going to impress her this time and she didn't pull no punches which i love from people like hey this this is man what is this you know and i'll go back but she taught me how to she really helped me cultivate my writing and she also would not edit it for me she she would get stuff and she started telling me about this thing called the internet and how is i'm like what and while she was describing it i'm like Man, I started dreaming about getting on this thing called the Internet. So anyhow, um, I mean, we would talk politics. We would I recall it was it was one time only folks that was left in the, in her class was me. Um, one of my comrades, Hector, which was a Puerto Rican brother. He R.I.P. He ended up dying um, a couple years ago after getting out. And it was this white supremacist dude. And it was the four of us. So you got a wow. black man, you got a Puerto Rican man, you got a white man who's caught up, who's enslaved by his own racism. And then you got Pat. And we would have mix. these deep conversations. And then it was funny because at certain points before we, it, he knew the white supremacist, so-called white supremacist knew who Pat was. He would assume when he that would they say had things, the same beliefs. but boy, she would just, you know, and she would still see his humanity too, though. Um, but this was our, like, so I, I fed off of that because I'd been doing all this reading. So I've been wanting to engage, you know, and I found out she retired. I called my daughter and said, Hey, what's that Google thing y'all got out there? <laughs> Look his name up. She looked it up. We found Pat got on my list. 
She read I Got Her My Book, My Visiting List. Um, we started writing, talking. Wow. Um, I gathered some of the brothers in the dorm. We helped do a counter report to one of those government reports that came out around this time. And through Platteville, we did. A, so it was just a lot of purposeful work. That um, you were able to still continue with her with, even with, after with her and, and also spread that love to other brothers who were very intelligent. And it felt good for them because they were able to contribute to something beyond prison, you know. So um, I sent her the, my, the copy of my book and I just like, yeah, this going to do it. Now I'm back on this too, right? And it just came back splattered. I mean, soaked in red ink. I mm, mean, she kept it up was her, devastating. Her critiquing like, skills. It was devastating. <laughs> it was funny because I was still rewriting it, learning from her. But no, and I needed that love. Like, And this is what I tell educators. When you high ex, high expectations, deep empathy, like you can still if you know a, a young person is is carrying trauma, is um, having a lot of socioeconomic issues, anything you can still have empathy, but still high, high, have high expectations. And then oftentimes in the um in the education system, it's either those who have no high expectations and, and less empathy or empathy and just lowering Low expectations, expectations, which is just as harmful. But if you OK, if this young person has whatever needs, whatever support they need, support them so they can achieve on the same level as any other student. Exactly. So that and that Pat modeled that, you know what I mean? Um, so we ended up getting the book together. And she asked me if she can send it to her friend, um, Donna, Dr. Donna Hartavalon. And I said, yeah, you know. And um, uh, her friend, Dr. Do Dr. Donna Hartavalon, read the book. And she wrote, Pat, and Pat, I mean, she communicated this to Pat. And Pat communicated to me. She said, there's no way I'm letting him die in prison. Mm. And she stood on that. Yeah, and it was crazy. Our first visit, I don't, all this time I'm thinking she a white woman because she's Pat friend. She's living in some place called Middleton. I ain't know what the hell Middleton was at the time. <laughs> now I do because I live in Madison. Right. But I'm like, so when I go up on a visit, when I entered the visit, I saw this beautiful black woman, like had a queenly like aura about her, but in vit prison, you don't be staring at people visit. I had a cold peripheral game, like you know what I mean. But you don't, you don't, you don't, don't stare. Get, yeah. Right. But I noticed it was like an energy, like man, she, you know what I mean. So I went and gave the guard my slip, and I'm like, where I'm at. He looked like you don't know where you visit at. I said, it's my first time seeing him, and pointed towards this beautiful black woman. <laughs> so I walk up to the table. I said, you black? <laughs> and she looked like I hope so. <laughs> And that was the beginning that she's my closest friend to this wow. day. She went to war for my freedom. She went and got the Innocence Project on my case. And they only had certain resources and wanted to do a time reduction, which would have still left me with a life sentence. Just And she, we said no. And she, she went to war. And we got the right lawyer on my case. She helped me get my first book published from the joint. And we walked out uh, of that prison in 20... 2015 March. Wow. Yeah. So this had been 20 years as of that point about? 20 years. Yeah. And I met I met Donna in around 2000. 
seven or eight. Yeah, but she went to, she she stood on it. She stood on it, and to this day, she's my closest friend, um, my mentor, and just a beautiful. I cannot sit here and. We don't have time. So I ended up um, going back to Milwaukee for a month. And while in Milwaukee, I just knew I had to leave. I had to leave. It was so much pain still connected for me. So many triggers. I moved out on my own. Um, by then, I was working in the education system. I started off at Memorial High School as a peace, um, as the community liaison for their peace room, which was a grant. Um, and then I, they started another school called Restore, um, and I joined that team as an actual employee, 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 employee. And then I ended up downtown. By 2017 or 18, I was working downtown as a, a restorative justice coach, but doing it through a anti-racism lens. And that's my lens, like... Um, and that's the work that I do. Uh, but in two, and so I was entitled, I was a restorative justice coach. But when I got downtown, and I loved it because I learned so much. Like I have had some awesome colleagues that just understood my struggle. And you know what I mean? And even the, the principal, Jay Affel, who hired me at, at, um, at Memorial, he took a risk because a part of me coming home, I took a deal to come home. I could have went back to trial. I could have risked another trial, but they wanted to settle the case because they didn't want to retry a 20-year-old case and then say, hey, we got to deal with a, a, a person who was not guilty of a crime. And I, at that time, I was 20 years in, so I said 25 years. I mean, they offered 25 years, which means I would go home immediately. So I accepted the 25 years, came home with five years parole, and I just got off in May. But I'm working in, that's the work I did. Um, and, and for me, there's a lot of institutional fear in, in public education that I just didn't get. But it was also a trigger to me because when I was fighting for my freedom, that institutional fear from people that truly love me got in the way of me getting home. Um, because folks were like, how are we going to beat this system? So I carry that story in education and, and really working with education and educational leaders. I, I, I retired from education, not retired, resigned in 2019. And now I, I have an LLC where I contract with educators around wherever, but mainly in Wisconsin. So I, I contract with Stoughton, who we're out there doing some really important work. And it's restorative it justice, okay, but say, it's through an anti-racism lens. Predominantly white staff that are just going deep. Well, let me ask you this because, and and thank you, like yeah, yeah. your story, yeah, I feel like you could get a movie, docu-series, something. Make to it just happen. lay it all out. Let's, let's get it. <laughs> I mean, we are a media company. I was like, I can't do that. Wait a minute. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> we can, we can talk about that. No doubt. But um, I'm, I'm thinking about like those who are listening to this and are thinking like, okay, we started off talking about like his time in school. And then we talked about your time in, within the criminal justice system. And I wanted to elevate why it's so important to talk about those two systems being connected. Because they, <laughs> one feeds the other. My school to prison Thank pipeline yes. started in middle school when they said, get out. That changed the trajectory of my life. When I went to, got kicked out of that middle school and went to that alternative school, the streets became a part of who, yeah, like they, they said, get out. And you know what I mean? 
So that story started in, in middle school, as it often does with young people. Part of the work that I do also, not only work, I mainly work with adults and work with adults around um, uh, race and racism and things. And it can be anything from curriculum to development to building just and equitable learning environments, but also contract with the um, a part of one of my contracts is working with the young people in the juvenile system right here downtown um, in JR, JRC. And many of them, like, I'm seeing the same thing in terms of, like, smart, gifted, in unique ways that don't fit the mold of. But, like... And you just want to like, how do we pull these resources and get them what they need in order to um, to to not. And, and that was my stance coming home. The assumption of many was that I was going to get into prison reform. But for me, um, Angela Davis taught me some stuff about what reform is <laughs> versus abolition. So that was one thing. And I still support Brothers in the Joint. I still support the cause around supporting um, uh, freedom of men, women, or however you identify. I still support that. But I came home, I'm going into education. Because for me, our young people spend more time in, in these schools. Yes. And and their their reality of themselves and the world is getting shaped. And, and education is like, it's always been like kind of like a, 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 it's, it's like a serious hit or miss. Um, and it has, it, it has impact. And again, like when COVID hit, I, I did virtual, um, I teamed up with some educators in the juvenile system and we built a, a, a curriculum from scratch basically. And guess who helped a virtual curriculum. Yeah. And guess who helped do it? Who, who? The students. They helped to create it. Because I would show up and I would come, or excuse me, uh, me and a couple of teachers would come with our lesson for today. And they would, and I would have a quote by Angela Davis, for example. And they would be like, who is Angela Davis? Inside, I'd be like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Next thing you know, we watching the 13th. And we're just constantly, and, and for me, and they would ask me a question like, who do I listen to? Music. And they were like, you listen to Kevin Gates? And I'd be like, yeah, what you know about Kevin Gates? And then they would, I would go and the artists that they say they listen to, I would go find interviews because what you will learn from a lot of artists, they will be on some super gangster tale stuff in their music. Then you go read it, you go listen to an interview and they and just some deep. And I'm like, so I, and, and Kevin Gates was like, his is our golden because he's, He's over here one minute, over here the next. But That's that, what I've heard about him. That <laughs> man, like, you go read some of his interviews, and the thing is, he would be talking about stuff that would coincide so perfectly with the lesson plan. When you talk about making decisions, surrounding yourself by the right people, res- learning how to respect women, when being harmed, because Kevin Gates is real vulnerable, so he would talk about being harmed as a young person because of his relationship, through his relationship with his mother, how that shaped his relationship with women, and how he began to become kind of basically a misogynist through that, and had to figure out where that drug addiction and how it was he was trying to quiet the demons in it. So a lot of this stuff. And it would support that. But for me, that's culturally responsive teaching because they're literally giving you. And I think um, 
Paulo Freire talks about how when you're a leader of the people or a revolutionary, you don't show up with all the answers. You show up, you listen to the people, they give you all their thoughts, their wisdom jumbled all up. And your job as the revolutionary is to go and organize that knowledge and wisdom and give it back to the people. And I think that's the same relationship that has to be done with young people where you have to show up expecting them to teach you some things. Because they're going to teach us like a parent and a child. That child is going to teach you how to be a father. You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to pay attention to what. The feedback how, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the same with education. But it's really difficult because if you are if you're an educator and you're 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 you're, you're showing up with all this bias that that society have. Uh, when you think about white supremacy culture, it's the air we breathe, the water we swim in. So we're, we've all internalized that, but you show up in a classroom and you've not done any of your own identity work and you're showing up with this. And then the district is constantly pounding data in your head about how black kids cannot learn. And then they say, go into class and change and teach black kids. So you have to have some very deep and intentional unpacking. Mm. And I feel like sometimes it's not even data that specifically says that, but it's the comparisons, right? So if you're saying, oh, that black students are performing in this way by comparison to white students, that's setting up white students as the norm by which everyone else is then expected to level up. That's the very epitome of white supremacy. Because if you're the norm, you're the superior. Right. You know what I mean? And if you're not learning in that dominant way, if you're not fitting into that cookie cutter approach to education, Mm -hmm. then... That's why that's how so many people end up in prison with such deep intelligence, but they may learn in unique ways. And if you're not an educator and the conditions has to be set by leadership to say, hey, you can get creative. But you have to do your work as particularly as not only as a white educator, because, again, people of color, um, specifically speaking for myself as a black person, we internalize this stuff as well. So we have to continue to do our own work. The struggle is we're expected to do the work of teaching um, white folks. Right. And then also doing our own healing. You know what I mean? And that's been a consistent theme in all these conversations that I've had today Mm -hmm. is that like there are folks like you who are in the field doing the work, but that doesn't absolve you from needing to like manage your own stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've had like a super traumatic like experience for decades like so you're still having to deal with aspects of what that still means to you on top of how you're pouring into other people and trying to fix like this corrupt system or system so yeah and 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 the daily chipping away of 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 micro traumas i don't say micro aggressions because those are just chippings away of every time you encounter some slight or anything it's a chipping away and when you're working in institutions that are just so rooted in whiteness that i mean i had to create space for myself because i i i was carrying a story of institutionalization and for me it freaked me out to start seeing the same fear that i saw in the prison system uh, amongst staff who wanted to treat, um, quote unquote, inmates more humane and how they would be scrutinized. And I show up in education. I did not get that level of fear. And I would it, it, it would be it, 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 it really shocked me and not from a place of judgment, from, but from a place of like 
how is this living? But that is that is capitalistic white supremacy culture where it thrives off of keeping people in place. Education is more about compliant than um, really um, helping students to become critical thinkers. And when you're focused on compliance, that stuff, it, it, it trickles down. So the principal is complying with the school district. The school district is complying with the board. And then the teachers feeling like they don't have power. So their classroom becomes their only place of power. So then now they have to get compliant. And that that energy around that, it makes it extremely difficult to have like those just and equitable learning environments. And I think with 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 with, with what I'm seeing with, with this, with the virtual learning, it is creating space only if it's, it's capitalized on, but it's creating space for, for educators to do some deep diving around identity, but also it's creating space for them, for the system as a whole, if they really want to do something radical. It was amazing how quick they dropped testing when um, it needed to be dropped. Right. And everybody's alive. It, it, you know what I mean? <laughs> like nothing bad yeah. happened to anyone. But right. now what I'm seeing in education, they're trying to pour old wine into a new bottle, a new reality. And 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 principals are burnout. Um, teachers are burnout because you cannot... It's not working for you, families. It's not working yeah, for students. And it's not working for educators. It's not working for anyone. And you have to learn how to pivot and say, you know what? Academics, okay, testing, whatever, but this is our new curriculum. How to make this more just, how to make this more humane, how to center the well-being of human beings across the line. Because I, that's who I work with, adults in education, and a lot of leadership are burnt out. And they're expected to be superheroes. So their staff kind of rages at them because they're not superheroes. Meanwhile, the staff don't, don't, don't feel supported. And they're trying to deal with um, this existential threat. They're dealing with work life, professional life overlapping. They're dealing with learning how to virtual learning. They're dealing with all this different stuff. And you still talking about testing evaluations. You got to how can we make sure the well-being of everyone is centered? And how do we make that a part of the curriculum? Like, how do we turn that into lessons? Because one thing that George Floyd and all this other stuff that's happening, that's all curriculum. And it's what's in pack. It's what we carry in. So we can create healing environments that that where education is anchored into the reality of what we're grappling with. But it's also led with hard work. But right. It's still that headiness head. And, you know, and I, it, it's, it's folks are burnt out. I love like everything as you just said, yeah. and especially like the emphasis on how we can reimagine. Cause there's mm -hmm. been, since we've gone virtual, like there's been like little catchphrases about what, what's the reimagining of education and what's it going to mm -hmm. look like that's different. And you're right, but it's, it's, it's catchphrasy to say that, but it's easier to default to what's familiar. So I feel like some folks there are trying is. to transition, but that's hard to do when the system is structured in a very specific way that this is how education works. But I am seeing like more conversations about, how are we centering social emotional needs and social and emotional learning such that we're not ignoring the realities of our students and our families and our staff in this point in history on top of like, we got to figure out online learning. Oh yeah. And it's COVID. Oh yeah. And all the other things, right? We can't ignore like that human side of people, which you've already too talked about 
as a driver behind why advanced learning didn't work for you, right? You did not work out in that environment because your social and emotional needs were ignored. So if we keep ignoring cell, then that's not going to serve, right? Those who were trying to and sell educate. For, for, sell for not only students, but adults. Right. Like adults we do so like it's just a, Yeah. Like, like it's for right, a uh, right. community, but the, 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 the threat to radically reimagining anything is are the human, the conditioning around going back to what you're familiar with. And um, it's the, I forgot who said it, but there's some old philosopher that said something along the lines that people would prefer a familiar slavery than an unfamiliar freedom because it's what they're, you know what I mean? Even though it's dysfunctional as hell. There's comfort in that dysfunction because yeah. at least I know what it is. And that is the biggest threat, but that's the biggest threat to any like real fundamental revolutionary change is you have to conquer that inclination to go to what you're familiar with, especially with when what's familiar is not um, benefiting the whole community. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's that's absolutely one of the takeaways that I think I personally would like people that are watching this conversation to have. Mm -hmm. So again, you've highlighted the issues around school to prison pipeline. You gave your own personal story of how that started off. And I hope people understood that entry point and what that mm -hmm. looked like and how it just escalated over time. Um, and then kind of how that culminated for you. One of the things I did want to elevate because you've mentioned men quite a few times is the plight around the school to prison pipeline, the school to prison pipeline, let me slow myself down mm -hmm. for black girls in particular, mm -hmm. um, because their rates are actually higher than black boys, but it's not being talked about. And there are books like Pushed Out that are trying to call attention to, hey, there's this issue, mm -hmm. but again, it's not being spoken about. So that's something you can speak to briefly before we close. Thank you for um, elevating that. It's just, it's, it's, I think it's still that old belief that it's just the threat to black males, but I'm in education. Um, black girls are being criminalized. Um, they're being... There being, it's an adultification of black girls. Um, you can have, I've witnessed it. You can have a group of white female students running down the hall. And it's symbolic. And people wouldn't bat an eye. But you have a group of black girls running down the hall. And it's just, you know, ring the alarm. And that's symbolic. It's a small thing, but it's symbolic. But we have got, I, I work with young, our young sisters, particularly, I just, we just had our last, they're quarantining in JRC, and our last two students were black, black girls, struggling, like, wanting to do good, wanting to do great things. But society is mean on our black girls, and they are being made to feel that they are not smart enough, they're not pretty enough, um... And some of it happens within the family. Some of it happens through media. Some of it happens um, through school. But they internalize that. And there's a phenomenon in, 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 in education where black girls are fighting. And they don't understand where it's coming from. But what you internalize, you externalize, particularly on those who, if you've been made to feel like you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, and you begin to develop some stuff. And I'm not talking about all because some of our little sisters is just like they get it. They get it. 
But there are some of our little sisters, they're, they're, they're suffering in deep ways. And instead of folks asking um, what happened, they're asking what's wrong with you. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's like that, that lack of recognition around how trauma, however that has manifested, maybe contributing to what you're seeing in the classroom. Yeah, it like, definitely is. And how that's then leading to other sorts of issues in school, yeah. which could then land you in the juvenile justice system. And that could just accelerate yeah. from there. And to be treated as a young person, to be treated as an adult or like treat young people like whole human beings, but give them space to develop. Um, they're still in a stage of brain development and things like that. But to notice. not have empathy uh, young people don't want sympathy. They want empathy. They don't want people to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that they want empathy because empathy is, yeah, that's terrible. How can I support you? What do we need to do to make sure you still succeed? Um, and not in, in the compassion piece comes in there because it's not enough just to be empathetic because you can get you can stall in empathy and go no further. But compassion is the action part. Like I'm going to do what I can to alleviate you're suffering. I'm going to do what I can to support you because you're you you're dealing with circumstances that are not of your own choosing and things have happened to you that you don't deserve that happened to you. But um, when you're made to believe what people treat you as if what is happening in your life, you deserve it. You begin to believe that. It, and then that 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 just creates this sparrow. But thank you for lifting that up. Um, and checking my patriarchy in the process because it is, it is. And I need that. I need that. But I, and, and I, and it's not like I'm blind to it because I see it. I've checked other people about it when they say our black boys, our black boys, no, our black girls are suffering now. And it's about creating healing spaces um, for them and, and, and allowing them, excuse me, allowing them to co-create these spaces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, like you said before, not coming in with the solutions and the hero cape on, right, right. but saying, what do you need and what would you like to create that then provides right. what is it you need? Yeah, for sure. Wow. Well, thank you for speaking mm -hmm. to that. We definitely didn't want sure. that that piece to go thank unnoticed. Thank you. Thank you. I needed that love. No, it's fine. It's this weird kind of juxtaposition of like an invisible hyper visibility mm -hmm. that I think black women and black girls in our state and our city like deal with on a regular basis. Yeah, and you know, absolutely. constantly confronting that I think is what we want, what we want to take mm -hmm. place here. So I feel like you've dropped so many nuggets just during our entire time together. So I don't want you to feel like you have to say something that's like a closeout. But if there's anything that you want people watching this to take away from, whether they can relate to your story or not, um, whether they're like, oh, this is like new information for me. I want to help. Or like I've been in this and I'm trying to move the needle and I'm just struggling. Like what what do you want them to what do you want them to, to connect with the most? I think on the one end. For me, anti-racism work is about tearing down the barriers that gets in the way of us seeing one another humanity. And that work is critical during this time, whether you are 80 year old or you eight years old. And we have to create spaces where we can have these conversations. We can um, healing justice. They talk about we 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 organize, we heal, we organize, we act. And I just think now more than ever, and it's, it's showing up everywhere. And a lot of the anxiety is causing because people, 
have been conditioned not to talk about it. We have to embrace the fact that something happened before all of us were born and we still carry it. Uh, James Baldwin, we're trapped inside of a history. Um, he was talking about white folks, but I think we all are trapped inside a history which we truly don't understand. And that history imprisons us in a lot of ways. So it's in our best interest to really go deep into that history, to unpack and to be brave and to create and prioritize spaces where it is. Whether you're in corporate America in a boardroom or you're in a school classroom, you prioritize these spaces where human beings can see one another and begin to disrupt um, the barriers that gets in the way of them seeing one another's humanity. But then um, it's like the mirror in the, the window. And I got this from the National Equity Project where you got the mirror where you have to do the work within. Like you got to constantly be looking in that mirror because you're never going to be woke. Um, and then you have the mirror. I mean, then you have the window and the window is the dealing with the institutional racism disrupting outside but when you start looking out the window you become self-righteous and you 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 become one of them folk who you you the most woke and all y'all are slacking on it but you, it humbles you when you recognize i have to do this simultaneous dance of looking in the mirror and looking out the window doing my work my inner work um and also looking out i got an analogy is the onion and the orange and some folk peel that first layer and they think they got the sweetness of being woke, like that one layer. But you realize, and that's, you done read one book, you done took some trainings and now you you, you peeled the first layer and you got the orange and it's sweet. But I think our mission is a, a onion mission where you're going to peel, you're going to peel, you're going to peel, and you're going to keep peeling because it's going to be lifelong work, whether, regardless of what your 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 race or your or or sexuality or gender is and sometimes that onion is going to make you cry like it's going to make you cry because right when you think you got it <laughs> and it's another thing shows up and I'm speaking from experience you know so that is so true this is this work is not a checklist mm -mm. it's not a, it's not checkbox work mm -mm. It's like you said it's mm -hmm. lifelong continuous commitment mm -hmm. thank you for that Rudy for sure public education is just that education for the public. The school-to-prison pipeline and other disparities within the education system can have huge negative effects on people of color, especially within the Black community. A lack of representation in classrooms, administrations, and on school boards adds to a list of problems that need solutions. And it's through stories like Rudy's that we learn how these issues affect students and why race matters when we talk about them. For more info on Why Race Matters and to hear and watch other episodes, visit us online at pbswisconsin.org slash whyracematters. Funding for Why Race Matters is provided by CUNA Mutual Group, Park Bank, Alliant Energy, Madison Museum of Contemporary Art, Focus Fund for Wisconsin Programming, and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. <laughs>